Have I gone again? Am I there? Oh. All right. All right, all right. Good stuff. I'm going to try and speak slightly slower this morning. <laughs> Cynical, did you hear that? I haven't prepared. Terrible. Um, but, uh, yeah, just um, <laughs> speak too fast sometimes. So let's pray and then I'm going to preach. Lord, thank you that you are with us and that you... Um, don't despise us, Lord, and it would be easy for you too, considering that you are eternal, considering that you are morally perfect, considering that you are absolutely holy, considering, Lord, that you never have wicked thoughts, considering, Lord, that all the power is yours in the universe and you could stop this whole thing now if you wanted to. Lord, it would be so easy for you to despise us. Finite, corrupted, Lord, flawed, but you don't. And you draw near to us and love us instead. And Lord, we are just eternally grateful to you for that. And uh, Lord, I pray today that we would have a sense of coming face to face with you. Today we would have a sense of just being reintroduced to you again. And caught up in the wonder of who you are. I pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Okay. Well, it's great speaking to people week after week. Some of whom you know, some of whom you don't. And um, you don't know where people are at, what people believe, what people's perceptions of truth are. So it's always great to just kind of go for it and preach what you believe God's put on your heart and really uh, leave the repercussions and the implications with the Lord. So I want to speak for a little while at the start of this morning about um, evolution um, and Charles Darwin's theory of evolution and really just make some observations on that which are very poignant to life. And um, you, you'll hear crying and screaming throughout this message, just to let you know, this because the crash is there. Uh, that's all. This, this, you know, it's nothing more than that, so it's fine. One of the things about Darwin's theory of evolution is that it deconstructs the idea that there is a grand story. Okay? It takes apart the idea that actually life is a story with a deliberate beginning and with, uh, and, and with meaning and with um, a climax, an end, like any story, um, and with an author. Because obviously, obviously it takes God, atheism will take God out of the equation, so you lose the author. Without an author, it's hard to get a story, agreed? Yeah? So, so you lose a story, you lose a sense that actually you're caught up in a grand narrative, you're caught up in a big story, there's a much bigger meaning to everything that goes on, um, to what perhaps you might see just by wandering around and thinking things look pretty random. Sometimes people would say that, that life is actually random. Um, they wouldn't believe in ultimate meaning in that sense. And really, Darwin's theory has really helped to deconstruct the whole idea of a story, a story with heroes and villains, a story with highs and lows, wars, reconciliations, love and hate, and a story that actually, en- a story that actually ends up with the prince um, getting his princess and living happily ever after. Um, which you might say, that, that sounds like a fairy tale. Isn't it good that that whole idea has been deconstructed? Because it doesn't sound real, it sounds like a fairy tale. But what if every fairy tale, which basically has the same pattern, I don't know if you've ever noticed that, all different stories but the same pattern, what if fairy tales are built on reality? 
Not to say that I believe in Cinderella, okay? Let's just be clear <laughs> in what I'm saying here. But what if the basic pattern of a fairy tale, which is the same pattern, reflects something of reality deeper than logic? I want to pull out a few um, examples which might help you to understand that maybe this isn't as crazy as it sounds. Why do you think it is that every single culture on the planet loves stories? Loves them. Every culture has a storytelling tradition of some kind, may have been lost, but would be able to point back to a storytelling tradition of some kind. Why is that? Why is it that as a preacher, whenever I get into storytelling mode, everyone sits up and locks in? I've preached to tens and I've preached to thousands. It's the same. Whenever you start telling a story, people's posture changes, they sit up straighter and they lock in. What is that? Why is it that when I go to the particular city in Morocco that I go to and go to the town square, you find the place full of musicians but storytellers and crowds surrounding the storyteller hearing stories that they've heard probably countless times but hooked still? Why is it that if you looked in the TV paper today and you found your favourite film it was on, even though you've seen it 15 times, you would probably sit down and watch it again and feel the emotions that you felt the first time you watched it? What is that? I want to argue today that there is something in the DNA of the human being that loves the story because we are caught up in a story. And history should definitely, as my conviction, be pronounced his story rather than history because that is what it is. God is writing this. And um, the whole evolution, atheism thing has really taken that apart and we're beginning to see the fruit of what that leads to in our society. We'll look at that in just a minute. Atheism really rips the heart out of the creation um, by suggesting there's no story. Those who think there is are weak-minded, childish and deluded. Um, I have to confess to a slight childish streak, but to call me weak-minded and deluded, I think I'd want to just argue with that a little bit. But the, the, the result of really taking the story apart leaves us with a smallness that we are not designed for. Because if there's no big story, because there's something in us, which I believe, which needs a story, we will find a story elsewhere. Okay? So you can be as clever as you like. I don't believe in all that story, nonsense, creation. I believe in evolution, atheism. It's all meaningless, but I guarantee you will look to find a story to be a part of. And it could be, which normally happens is this, is that people find the story in their story. So their life becomes the story. Yeah, their life becomes the thing that, which has to turn out well, and etc. Uh, etc. Et You'll often hear people say these days, "There's no community spirit anymore." Used to be, but there's no longer any community spirit. People walk by while someone else is getting robbed or someone else is getting raped. Walk by, you hear about it, you read about it in the paper. Horrendous. But actually, if your story is the story, then the priority is that your story has to end well. So self-protection is the logical conclusion if your story is the story, because it's got to end well. You've got to win. And you're the hero because it's your story. That's the story. You see the logic? I'm not suggesting for a minute that all atheists are selfish. Hallelujah, there are some illogical ones out there who still allow themselves to be caught up in bigger stories in their own lives. But the logic of atheism is that there is no big story, so just do what seems good in your own eyes and what will benefit you. That is the cold, hard logic of it. In our home for the last two weeks, we missed the first one three weeks ago, but for the last two weeks we've watched Star Wars. Anyone got in on that Star Wars thing? It's been great, hasn't it? So we had Empire Strikes Back a couple of weeks ago and the Return of the Jedi last week, blinding. But what you notice as you watch it is this, is that 
Almost every half an hour, Luke Skywalker, or Han Solo, or Chewie, or Princess Leia, or reluctantly C-3PO, bless him. But they always, they always what you find is, is that they, they're constantly putting their life on the line. Laying down their lives to one another, or, or, or just, you know, I'm going to now drive into the middle of a spaceship. I'm going to navigate alleyways that are that wide when my spaceship is this wide, and I'm going to do it. And there's no sense of, oh, I'm not sure I'm going to do it because, you know, I might die. You don't pick that up with them. They'd say, no, let's do it. Come on, let's go. And you think, why? Because they've got the bigger story. They know this is about something bigger. The Empire's coming. Darth Vader is on the move. They're going to wipe out this planet and that planet. We've got to go for this because there's this bigger picture. And what you find is, is that when you understand the big story, Things like self-sacrifice begin to make sense. Yeah? If you're not bought into the big story, self-sacrifice is a nonsense and you run from it, understandably. And the passage we're going to look at today, 1 John 4, is a big deal um, in terms of understanding um, the big story. If you don't get the big story, it's not going to make sense what John is saying. If you've got no grasp of the big story, even if you're a believer. Now let's just look at this for a minute. I'm going to be a little bit provocative before we read not like me, but uh, I would say there are most definitely believers who have got no understanding of the big story. They seem to think that God exists to make their life easy. God exists to fulfill my dreams, to bless my ideas, and generally just be around to look after me if things go wrong. That's, That's the understanding. And basically what it is, it's where the gospel has been taken out of a, a kind of a biblical understanding of reality. What a wife, what a wife. <laughs> She's part of the big story, she says. She's part of the big story. She's laying down her life. Thank you. Yeah, amazing. You could have tripped over there or anything. It's quite slippery, that floor, but you just came straight in. What will they think if they listen to this on the website? What the heck is going on? Anyway, sorry. Um, so, but there are, so, so what happens is you've got our society, which is a consumer society. You know that? It's consumerism, yeah? Gear. It's take, take, take. Everything's geared towards that. You need more. Yeah? I, know you're, I know your stomach's full, but it's going to be empty in two hours. You need more. Yeah? I know you've got a wardrobe full of clothes, but if you just bought another wardrobe, you could get a lot more clothes in it. Okay? You need more. That's what it's about. Consume, consume, consume. Um, that is not a godly uh, mindset. I don't know if you know that. That's not um, because cons- the lie behind consumerism is that that's where you find fulfillment, happiness, the more stuff you get. That's the promise, but it's not true. So you keep on, keep on, keep on. And if the devil can just keep you believing that um, until you die, then he's laughing. Yeah? But it never actually produces what it promises. It just produces novel happiness where you're excited about your new shoes for 20 minutes, then you need a new pair. Now, new shoes are fine. Okay, don't hear what I'm not saying. But the whole consumerism thing, where that's what that's where you get towards. And, it, and, and what happens is, is some people get, become Christians, but they keep that consumerism thing. And so it's about God. It's about God meeting my needs. It's about God um, fulfilling my desires. It's about God completing my dreams. And rather than uh, a kingdom mentality, which says I am signing up to a much bigger story and a much bigger kingdom, and I'm willing to lay down my life for this because this is much more important than me. Very, very different. 
And, but in the West, there's, this whole idea has been hijacked by consumerism. And so sometimes you get whole ministries and see, sometimes it seems whole churches built on this thing. Come to us because you're going to get rich. We'll teach you about how to get rich. Um, we'll teach you how to be successful. And God will, God will, you know, all your dreams will come true. And you just think, man alive. I do not see that in the Bible. I'm sorry. I'm not saying God's will is for you to be poor. It may be, but it may not be. I'm not saying God won't fulfill your dreams. If they're sanctified and submitted to him, he most likely will. But if they're just your idea of what you want to do and get God in to bless you, sorry, you've missed it. You've got to understand this because you're not just reading the, you read the Bible through your cultural lenses. Through your, so you've got to learn to take off the old specs and put on the new ones, which is about, no, I've, been in, I've been enlisted for a much bigger thing. I want to be a hand solo. And I want to lay down my life for the bigger story. I want to be a hero. I want to follow in the hero. That's the thing. And so we've got to understand that in order to um, grasp it. So what is this story in a nutshell? It's a romance. You happy with that? Hallelujah. It's about the father preparing a bride for his son. Yeah? That's what it's about. It's about the father wanting the very best bride for his son. The bride is known as the church. And so, and so the church is being prepared and made holy so that she is fit to be joined with the Son of God. Okay? So the idea is that she's becoming like him so that they may be joined in harmony and in a good union. And, so, and the Father's working all of history towards that. It's a romance. It's an adventure. It's a cosmic struggle. It is Star Wars extreme. All right? We're not talking Darth Vader here. We are talking Satan, who is a real, malicious Father of lies, the Bible describes him as accuser of the brothers. He hates the glory of God and he hates people. And so he is out to destroy the glory of God in people's lives, which basically ends up destroying people too, because we were made to reflect and know the glory of God. So that is his aim. Now, the grand, how this story ends is not in question. He will win, but believe you me, individual lives are most definitely at stake. So it's a romance, it's an adventure, and this thing is international. It's God's desire that every nation comes to know his glory. Okay? It's an international thing that every remotest people group you could imagine comes to see the beauty and the majesty of their creator. That is what this story is about. We are called to lay down our lives for this story, not just contribute towards it as we might do towards a sponsored walk. Yeah, okay, okay, yeah pound, pound a mile. That's not the idea. The idea is to say, I'm in. I'm, this is, I'm in. I'm signing up. I've caught the bigger thing. Count me in, whatever it takes. Yeah, that's the idea. That's the spirit. Um, anything less is insulting to God, and it's a recipe for boredom. Okay? It, it's both. It really is. There's nothing worse than kind of being half in. So let's read, shall we? 1 John chapter 4. And then we'll look at just two points. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Okay, we're going to just go through the first point now and then we'll read on and do the second point. What is the first problem that John is tackling here? Here it is. It's um, the main hero of the story, Jesus Christ, is being tampered with. That's the problem John's writing into. When John refers to them and they, anyone remember who he's referring to over our studies over the last weeks? 
Who's he referring to? Yep. Yep, but who are they in this actual... They were people that... False teachers, okay? So as a church, these guys have come in and started teaching different things, trying to get people to follow them. And Paul, John is sorry, is writing to really just come a counter-attack what they've been saying. And these guys have been fiddling around with Jesus. Let me please give you some advice. Don't fiddle around with Jesus. Do not try to take the main hero of the main story and, cre- and kind of just take that bit off, done like that. We'll just change that a bit. Yeah, here we go. Or, or I'll just bring my own one. We'll call him Jesus, but it's my own little, it's, my own, it's, the, own, it's the same thing because he's got the same name, but it's different. You mustn't do it. And that's really what they've been doing here. And um, um, these people didn't like the real Jesus. Now, what didn't they like about Jesus? They were saying Jesus was no way a real man. That's what they were saying. There's no way Jesus was a real man. Terrible. Why? Here's why. Because they, they were people who thought they were really spiritual. And so they thought that the physical side of life was unspiritual. They thought it was corrupted. It was like, oh, don't, don't do it. So there's no way Jesus could really have ate and drunk, gone to the toilet, for goodness sake, had, had natural desires. Please, no, 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 no. He was the Christ. He was the Messiah. And so they would say, no, 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 he wasn't physical at all. But listen, let me assure you, Jesus Christ is fully man. That is a massive deal. That is a really massive deal. And so he says, anyone who, anyone who can't actually say with their mouth that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not from God. They're the Antichrist. They're operating in the Antichrist spirit. Quite a big thing to say. Quite a huge thing. But why is it such a big deal? Because if you get a false Jesus, you get a false salvation. Yeah? If you say, I believe in Jesus, but you're talking about a different Jesus from the, the historical Jesus, then you don't believe in Jesus. You've just made up your own one. It's using the same words. So the Jehovah's Witnesses, for example, they say Jesus came in the flesh. Jesus Christ didn't. They say Jesus came in the flesh and then at his baptism, the Christ Spirit, whatever that is, but the Christ Spirit came on him and then left him just before the cross. Okay? Because there's no way Jesus Christ was a real person. So it's like, it's like he, Jesus was in that sense just a normal person, but there was this, this kind of like um, phantom spirit thing that came on him. And then lifted off before the cross. Because God dying on the cross is too much to cope with. It's just too much. It's like, we don't like that. I mean, and you, f- <laughs> you find that, you find that if you want to know whether someone who's coming to you is a cult or just kind of off their rocker, ask them about Jesus. What do you say about Jesus? And um, see if they say what the Bible says. Because it's actually a big deal in the spirit. Satan would love to give you a counterfeit Jesus. One looks similar, but when you look at it, that's not the same thing. doesn't do the same thing. doesn't save. doesn't change your life. So that's what these guys were saying. But John assures them they're going to overcome these false storytellers um, because they've got the Spirit of God in them. Yeah? He says, even if their ideas are really popular, don't worry. It's because they're from the world. The world listens to them. You must not panic if people start believing all kinds of nonsense around you. I say, oh no, it seems to be really taking root. Listen, John says, if you're from the world, people of the world are going to listen. Yeah? We must not accommodate what we say to just kind of fit with the world. So now Jesus doesn't mind. Now Jesus is okay if you sleep around. Jesus is cool with that. That was back in the old days. It's fine with that now. You're just accommodating to the world because you want to draw more people in. But you're accommodating Jesus. You're creating your own one. You mustn't do that. You mustn't do that. You can't, he's too holy. You can't just change him around. It's not like a Rubik's Cube. I'll have a bit in a bit. You can't do it. Keep him as he is, right? He will glorify his name. And those who come to him will be truly saved, yeah? Just be absolutely confident in this. So what is our hero like? What is Jesus like? He's as human as you and me are. Do you know that? 
When you speak to Jesus, Jesus, I'm really struggling with this. He says, I know what that's like. He says, I know exactly what that's like. He's been tempted in every way, but without sin, utterly holy. But before you think of, oh, holy, what does that mean? You know, floating around. No, he would go to wedding feasts and enjoy himself. In fact, he went to a wedding feast once and turned water into wine, whereas it seems that for the past few hundred years, Christians have been trying to turn wine into water. You know, but, you know oh, no, we don't like all that wine stuff. You know. Well, no, Jesus turned water into wine. He, 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 he was described by the religious leaders as a friend of sinners. They hated him. They accused him of being a glutton and a drunkard. Because he would go to these parties and he would get involved in what they were doing in terms of eating, drinking and relating, although of course he wouldn't sin. But he was tempted in every way, like you and I are, but he never sinned. This is Jesus. He's wonderful. He's fully man and he's fully God. He knows what it is to be utterly human. He still is human now in heaven. This is the amazing thing. When he became flesh, when he became born in that stable, what a commitment. He actually made himself human forever. Just unbelievable almost. You think... He's now, our, he's now the man in heaven. Hallelujah. Risen, ascended. He's in heaven at the Father's right hand. But he is a man. He always will be fully man now with those marks in his hands. Somehow in his glorious body. It's a mystery. And people that don't like mystery don't like it. Oh, well, let's just take that bit out. Don't understand it. It's a glorious mystery. But this is Jesus. This is our Saviour. He died a criminal's death even though he was innocent. Utterly criminal's death. Arrested. Uh, trumped up charges brought against him. No one's stories fitted. But they said, no, just condemn him anyway. Just shout down Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate was a Roman leader. He knew Jesus was innocent. Pilate's wife had a dream about Jesus. She said, don't, whatever you do, condemn that man. He's righteous. I've been troubled in my spirit all day after I had a dream about him. Pilate knew he was innocent. And he said, I've got to find no guilt in this man. The crowd just shouting down, crucify him crucify you think man what a terrible mistake no this was God's plan hallelujah he came to die the Bible says that God made him who knew no sin this man Jesus Christ to become sin so that we might become the righteousness of God on the cross there was a transaction that went on a swap his beautiful life for our ugly life his righteous life for our sinful life his obedient life for our disobedient life there was this amazing transaction that went on whereas now if you come into Christ you can die to what you are in terms of your sinfulness in terms of your selfishness in terms of you just kind of wanting to do your own thing you die to that with him on the cross you get buried with him through baptism and then you get raised up into newness of life with him and then the Bible says even as a believer it's like you're seated with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus it's glorious this is Jesus this is the message this is the gospel this is what brings everlasting life it's a straight swap so on the cross the price was paid the job was done God's anger was spent justice was satisfied all utterly completed and that way God Jesus opened up a way for us back to the father so the father could reconcile us back to himself this is the hero you must know this Jesus you must not just have a creation of your own mind and call him Jesus. You must wake up to the fact that you are a creation of his mind. If he never thought of you, you wouldn't be here. Okay? That's the deal. That's the reality. But then there was another problem, a second problem, that these guys, they weren't living lives of love. They were preaching a false Jesus and then they were living terrible lives. They, their actions weren't matching up with what they were saying. Let's read from verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. 
In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this, we know that we abide in him and he in us because he's given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence on the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Strong stuff. <laughs> yeah, really strong stuff. The concepts are frightening that John uses here. Frightening. What does John mean when he says, as he is, so also are we in this world? What does he mean? He means the idea is this. That we are to so reflect Christ. If you're a believer, you are to so reflect Jesus Christ that it's possible to say, as he is, Jesus is, so are we in the world. What is he? He's righteous, he's holy, he's perfect in that sense. As he is, so are we in this world. Now the Bible makes, takes account for the fact that we make mistakes and we stumble and there's always the blood of Christ to cleanse us. But there's still this bar raised high where John says, as he is, so also are you. You're called to love. You, it's no good to just kind of have this strong message, this is the true Jesus and, you know, you know, kind of this whole thing and then actually be unloving because it's just horrible. <laughs> it's horrible. And no wonder Christians have been slated that have really been strong on the truth but have not loved. You think, yeah, because truth without love does not bring life, actually, does it? It's just horrible. And, you know, there's sometimes you go past and there's people that are preaching and you think, man, actually, if I looked at the content of what you're saying on the street and stuff, the content, you think, well, I actually believe with the content of what you're saying. But actually, the, what your whole manner and who you are as a person is actually making me want to distance myself from you because I just feel, man, there's no love. Do you know what I mean? Sometimes you feel, you feel you're, you're just out to get people and you just feel, man. John says, as he is, so also are we in this world. Some scholars have tried to pretend John is saying different things because there's too much almost to cope with. You think That's the reality of what the Christian life is to look like. I'll show you something else as well. Turn to John, the Gospel of John, if you've got your Bible. Chapter 1. This is very provoking. It was St. Augustine, who lived around about 1600, 1700 years ago, who said this. He summed up the Christian life by saying this. Here's how to live the Christian life. Love God and do what you want. Fantastic. Love God and do what you want. Because if you're really loving God, what you want to do will just be... So it's not complicated, this Christian thing, but it's challenging. Very challenging. Listen to this. John 1, verse 18. No one has ever seen God. 
The only God who is at the Father's side, that's Jesus, he has made him known. So what John's saying there is no one's seen God. So you think, well, what's God like? He said, oh, look, he's been made known by the one at his side, who is Jesus. So here John is saying, Jesus has made him known. Now let's go back to our passage. Exactly the same Greek phraseology. Construction sentence exactly the same. This is deliberate. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. So there he's saying, no one has ever seen God. So how do you know what it's like? Jesus has made him known. Now Jesus has gone back to heaven. John's saying, no one has seen God. How do you know what it's like? When Christians love each other. Exactly the same thing. You want to know what God is like? You should be able to look at the Christian community and say, wow, look at that. That is serious, that is provoking, that is very, very either attracting to some, but others, for, for whatever reason, don't like it. But there's a lot of confusion around this subject of love. Some people say, how can you actually stand up there and say, this is what Jesus is like, this isn't what Jesus is like, and be all uptight about truth when you're supposed to be loving? Surely loving means that we just kind of, we all just get on. Yeah? We all just kind of, I don't know become like cosmic kind of hippies where we just sort of like float towards heaven high on cannabis and good, good karma. And you think, surely that's love. You know, surely, which actually biblically, no, it's a lot more concrete than that. Actually, what is, what, is, what is the life of love biblically? It's about becoming serious about laying down our lives for our brothers and sisters. It's about becoming serious about saying, I'm going to be sacrificially loving towards my brothers and sisters in Christ. And I'm also going to be determined to do good to all. I'm going to love my enemies. It's a strong and robust and a concrete thing rather than kind of vague and hard to measure. It's like, no, I'm going to, I'm going to serve you. I'm going to love you. That's the idea. And um, it can seem a bit much. You can think, man, this is, oh, how am I going to do this? Now, if it was just the fact that there was Jesus and we're supposed to try and follow him as our example, impossible. If anyone tells you that's what Christianity is, nonsense, not the case. Here's the deal. The deal is you get born again. He comes to live inside of you by his spirit, okay? And actually, as you just walk with him and allow him to be him in you um, and resist everything that, that is un ungodly in that sense, but you just say, Jesus, I want you to live your life through me. I want you to make yourself known through me. It is a supernatural thing. Jesus will express his love through you to others. Yeah? Now, it takes engagement of the will. You've got to sort of submit to him and that. But actually, it's not. It's a supernatural, miraculous thing. Jesus described it as like being a vine with branches. He said, look, I'm the vine. You're the branches. It's kind of like this. I'm in you. You're in me. Paul describes it as being one spirit with him. And it's this mysterious union where we are joined with him and who he is as we allow him to express himself through, we are, through who we are. So that as people come into contact with us, they say, there's something different about you. What is that? So it's Jesus. It's not that I'm a nice guy. It's not just, it's, look, Jesus lives in me and it's a supernatural thing. It's not about me being somehow different in some weird way from you. Just Jesus lives in me by his spirit. You see how this works? Jesus is perfectly loving. And so as we go on being filled with his spirit and just saying, Lord, live through me. God, make yourself known through me. His perfect love increasingly will be expressed through us. And we will be the thing that we've been called to be. Perfect love will develop, and that is one thing that casts out fear. And we are a fear-ridden society. Fear of rejection, 
Fear of failure, any one of these you? Fear of abandonment, fear of death, fear of the dark, fear of loneliness, fear of physical harm and attack. Probably covered most people in the room by that short list in some ways in terms of things you're just aware of. That's an issue potentially for me. And there's many solutions that the world offers, some better than, the other, than others. But the one miraculous solution is this, perfect love. God's love being put in you. You know, there are people I know that are just so loving, they just live these fearless lives. You know, if you look at people that have really made an impact, Christian heroes, you see, what was it? that this, this perfect love. They love those they're reaching. So like Jackie Pullinger going into the walled city in Hong Kong, where full of drug addicts and gangsters and criminals and triads. And she goes in there and you think, what is it? Why aren't you scared of them? Well, she actually would confess there were times where her knees were literally knocking together, but there was this love. I want to reach these. And so it overcomes, yeah? It casts out the fear because there's a greater thing driving. This is what the Lord wants to do in us. Now, we're not all called to be Jack and Pullingers, but for what we've been called to be, this is what God wants to do in us. And God will do it. If he puts a dream in you, if he starts to stir things in you by his spirit, he will equip you with what you need to do it. Amen. He, will, he really will. He won't just sort of put something in your heart and then leave you to it. But John is saying that as we come into this perfect love, there's a responsibility that we definitely have to love each other. And I want to just conclude with this and just look at this again. We've looked at it week after week, but I don't want to look at it again. Because I think it's almost, my idea of kind of an ideal church is not, is not a church that kind of does stuff just because it's in the diary, you know, or goes there because that's what we're doing now. But there's this internal engine where you're just, you're wanting to be with God and you're wanting to be with his people. Do you know what I mean? It's, like, it's, it's organic. It's, the life of God is bubbling up. There's joy. There's lightness. It's not, it's not that you're being constrained by a sense of, oh, you know, I'm better. And I know there are times where you have to just knuckle down. But there's this genuine thing where you just feel I'm being driven internally by this God's spirit. You know, surely that's how God intended it to be. So we have a big responsibility to grow. Say, God, teach me how to love. What does this actually mean? Well, the Bible says do good to all, especially to the household of believers. All right, so we're to do good to all, but we're to take special account for the believers. Why is that? Well, because you've got to have your own house in order if you're going to try and help outside. Yeah, there's no point being Mr. and Mrs. Loving kind of out there to those who are lost, and then they come into the church and it's just loveless. It's just, it's, we're going to shoot ourselves in the foot. It's not how it should be. So we need to make sure our house is in order, we're loving one another, laying down our lives for one another, and out of that, you know, there's just a sense in which the, those who don't yet know the Lord are kind of. It, encountering that in some way, seeing that, being around us, and God is at work in their lives. And remember what, what, what Christian love is? One of the scholars said it's the giving impulse. Again, what a challenge to consumerism. We are called to live by the giving impulse, not the taking impulse. See, we're conditioned to take. God says, give. Give yourself to others. Employ your gifts and your talents. Don't wait to, don't wait to be asked. If you see a need, Meet it as much as you can. Do what you can with what you've got. That's, that is what this life of love looks like. Jesus says if you give it, it will be given back to you. So he's willing to even promise us that. But the first step is to actually give. Don't say, I want some kind of guarantee third person. This is going to happen. He won't do it like that. He says, listen, in a way that God sees fit, it will come back. It's not tit for tat, okay, it's a faith, spirit thing. But if you, if I, I can guarantee you, those who live lives, there's an overflow about them where people just love being around them. They've given themselves to people, people just give themselves back. What is that? It's exactly what we see here, give and it will be given. Don't wait to be invited out. Invite some guys out. Some people can complain, no one ever invites me out. Who have you invited out? Oh, 
Don't wait to invite someone out. Don't wait to be offered tea. Offer to make some. Yeah, you give me someone say, you want a cup of tea? Say, can I make tea for everyone? Give. Serve. Go the extra mile. This is the body building itself up. This is how it works. Yeah, this is the body building. If you see a need financially and you can meet it, you know someone's got you and you can meet it, meet it. Get a little anonymous envelope. Give it to someone and say, give that to someone. So don't tell them. Do it. Drop it through the letterbox at midnight. It's fun. Give. Learn to give. Learn the joy of giving. You say, but I haven't got much. Don't worry. Just give what you've got. It's fine. Give. You say, well, no, I'm not going to give now because I'm in this situation. When I get a bit more, uh, then I'll give. No, you won't. You won't. I guarantee you won't. That's not how it works in the kingdom. How it works in the kingdom is this. You're faithful with what you got, then God entrusts you with more. Okay, so give. Give to the church. Give. It will come back. There will be a blessing. There will be an overflow. But you can't wait for some kind of written guarantee before you do it. You believe God and you crack on. Yeah, but watch what happens. The fruit will flow. Maybe not how you expected, maybe not when you expected, but it will come because God is true to his word. This whole thing keeps us from becoming super spiritual. Listen to this quote from Calvin. It is a false boast when anyone says he loves God but neglects his image, which is before his eyes. In front of me, I have, I don't know, 50 or so people who are God's image before my eyes. It is a false boast if I say, I love God, but I don't love you. It's a nonsense. Because you've been made in the image of God. And the reason that why I'm biblically New Testament, how what is one of the sure tests that I actually do love God is that I love you. It's one of the sure tests. Challenging stuff, isn't it? I thought it was. <laughs> so <laughs> but I want, what I want to say is look, let's not because if it is challenging, don't then change it so it fits better. Just get on with it. And you'll find there's a grace and an ease in it, yeah? Because 1 John says, and we'll look at this when we look at our last uh, thing in the series next week, the commandments of God are not burdensome. They're not. And sometimes the, the, you get these thoughts in your head which say it's going to be too hard, it's going to be too tough, it's going to weigh you down. And it's just, really often it's just unbelief and stuff. No, it's not. It's, it's actually a liberating thing. So there it is. Be true to the true hero, yeah, Jesus Christ. Be true to him. And be true to, the, to what this story is about, which is love. Immerse yourself in the grand story, what the scholars call the meta-narrative, okay? Meta means big, narrative means story. They like to use long words, okay? So get into the big story. Because as you increasingly get caught up with what this whole thing is about, you will find that your own story doesn't disappear, but it finds its place in the big plot, yeah? You think, oh, it's not just that I kind of immerse into this kind of weird kind of thing. What happens is, is I find, oh, I've actually been created with a place in this huge, amazing plot, and I'm discovering what it is. And it's a very wonderful and fulfilling thing. And you'll end up seeing the stupidity behind the idea that there is no story. The only people who say that are those who haven't discovered it. I probably think there wasn't one, but that's because I hadn't seen it. Suddenly, God rolled up the blinds, and it's like, oh, <laughs> and you see it. And you think, yeah, there it is. It's there. So as a church, I want to just encourage us. Let's keep laying down our lives for each other. Keep serving one another. Keep close to God. You can't just do this by the power of the will. This is an overflow, yeah? So please, guard, guard that walk, that relationship with the Lord. Yeah, guard it. Become friends with him. Pour out your heart to him. Don't get clinical, professional, or staid, or formal, or religious, or ritualistic. Just have a relationship with the Lord. 
pour your heart. Keep asking him to fill you up, okay? He will fill you up so you can live how he's called you to live. If you find you're actually just not coping, you're doing one of two things. You're probably either trying to do it in your own strength or you're just probably just trying to be a perfectionist and trying to do stuff that God's not even calling you to, okay? He hasn't called you to get involved in the details of everyone's life in the church so that you can solve all their problems. Hallelujah. Amen. That's <laughs> it's a body working together. And, and, and as we do that and play our part, the thing will be built to the glory of God. Amen. 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 Lord, thank you for the simplicity of this life you've called us to. It's a life of love. Thank you. We've constantly got an example of what that means when we look at you, Lord Jesus, and your wonderful sacrificial act for us. And Lord, I just want to pray. I want to just kind of gather up this whole community and bring them before you, Lord, me included, and say, Lord, help us. Help us, Lord. Help us. We want to do something utterly supernatural. We don't want to just kill time, Lord. We don't want to just go through the motions. Lord God, deliver us. Those of us that are just caught up in our own story as if it's the story. Lord God, those of us that find ourselves more concerned about the development of our own career than we do about the development of the gospel. Lord, those who are more wound up about our nest eggs than we are about storing up heavenly treasure. I pray God deal with us. Help us to repent and change our mind and help us to give ourselves to what you're doing, I pray. In the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Let's get the band up.